HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Huertas, a Basque-influenced restaurant in NYC's East Village. Learn more at huertasnyc.com. That's H-U-E-R-T-A-S-N-Y-C dot com. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I would love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, food is everywhere. Look around you. It's getting better in the world of food, not just in what we can get from overseas and the flavors and types and techniques we can learn about and enjoy, but it's getting better in cities all over the United States. The climate for food business has gotten friendlier and friendlier in many places. Local government is taking notice, and they're supporting people and communities with, in, and around food. Mark Winnie has been working for and around local food and food policy for more than 40 years. In that time, he's gone from working with city administrations like Hartford, Connecticut, to helping rural areas and more. His most recent book is called Food Town USA, and it profiles seven cities you might not think of as hotbeds of innovation in food and business. But they're making great strides and can serve as leaders and examples of how more and more towns and cities can support food as an economic driver in their own communities. Mark and I got on the phone back in December and had a great chat about it. I hope you like it. Hello, Mark Winnie. Hey, Mark. This is Harry Rosenblum calling. Can you, uh, can you introduce yourself and... Uh, Tell me what you do. Yes, uh, I'm Mark Winnie, and I'm a writer, and I write on food topics, and I write from experience, which is mostly based on a long career in food activism, uh, running nonprofit organizations, doing food policy and advocacy. And um, over the last few years, I've been associated with the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, where I work with them on uh, developing local food policy projects, food policy councils, and sort of more community-based solutions to some of the food problems we have in this country. Well, uh, that's uh, that's all really, you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And obviously here at Heritage Radio, we, we talk a lot about these these subjects, and I know you've been on a couple of other yeah. shows. Um, yeah. Let's jump right into the heavy stuff. I mean, you've worked for the last four plus decades in around on food policy. Um, you know, how are we doing? Is it getting better? <laughs> uh, we 
You know, it is getting better. Good. I mean, I, a lot of people probably don't see it that way. Uh, I have the benefit of a pretty long uh, historical perspective, knowing where we started, which was pretty bad and pretty dismal, like going back to the 1970s. Sure. And um, I mean, I'll just give one example. Farmers markets had maybe a couple hundred in this country in the 1970s. Today we have around 8,500 across the country. There's many, many other examples like that. But, you know, I think there's this challenges are still there. It's food insecurity or hunger. Um, I mean, now we're sort of talking about some of these issues in terms of equity and um, particularly, uh, you know, racial equity, uh, income and wealth equity. I mean, these, this, the equity lens is now sort of the way that a lot of people are looking at it. But, you know, they're still kind of addressing the same basic problem, which is we have about 12% of our country people are uh, hungry or food insecure. And the other big issue is obesity and, and poor health, and, you know, diet-related health. And, yeah. You know, that, that really, in a way, has eclipsed the problem of hunger in the U.S., Right. And, and a lot of that, I mean, it seems like there's kind of, you know, it, it's good to hear that things have gotten better in these certain uh, markers, right? Like there are more farmers markets, and hopefully that means that there are more places where local food is available or people's dollars are being spent kind of with a direct relationship um, between themselves and where their food is coming from. At the same time, we see at the sort of other end of it, um, companies like Unilever or like Kraft and their ownership um, you know, mm-hmm. kind of conglomerating together all of these processed foods, which, as you point out, are really, you know, causing a lot of the health issues that people have. That's right. I mean, we still I mean, the, the way that big food corporations kind of enter the food game and the food system is problematic. Um, yeah. I mean, there are they have made progress in terms of providing better food and um also addressing some of the interests in local food and sustainably produced food. Uh, but at the same time, they're still putting out a lot of uh, junk that is still the, the source of the problem. And that's not just the food itself, but often the marketing that goes behind it that sure. you know, has a major impact on our behavior, our choices. You know, we are human beings and we're subject to the all these signals that um, the very best minds of the world have figured out how to manipulate uh, through these food corporations. Yeah, absolutely. So your most recent book is called Food Town USA, and it's about seven cities um, that might not be on most people's radar as hotbeds of sort of culinary and food innovation. Um, those cities are Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Alexandria, Louisiana, Boise, Idaho, Sitka, Alaska, Youngstown, Ohio, Jacksonville, Florida, and Portland, Maine. Right. How did you choose those seven to kind of be the focus of the book? Of the book? Well, I was looking for cities, as you say, that are um, kind of off the radar. They're just they're just not known as having a big foodie profile. Sure. And um yeah, I, and I deliberately avoided, you know, Brooklyn and right. <laughs> Berkeley and Boulder yeah. and a lot of other B cities yeah. uh, in, fa- in favor of places like Bethlehem and Boise, yeah. uh, because I really felt that there was something going on in these places. Definitely. There's a lot of activity. And because it was going on in these places, it must be going on everywhere. I mean, it must be. A big deal. So I've sort of like developed this hypothesis that good food is the new normal. 
and communities are doing a lot more to try to make sure that good food is available to everybody. Right. And I wanted to sort of document that and prove it, not just that it's important to these seven cities, but it, there's a certain universality about that right. going on across the country. And so I wanted to recognize it, you know, identify it, and really in a way celebrate it. So, you know, those that was part of it. I wanted regional diversity in the cities. <clears throat> I wanted size um, differences. Uh, I wanted sort of a mix of racial uh, groups and, uh, and communities. Um, I also, another sort of hidden factor perhaps is that since I've been in the food movement a long time, I know a lot of people, mm. fortunately, and I knew people in these places that could, in most of them, not all, but most of them, they could guide me. They could get me around and say, here's, here's somebody you ought to talk to. Here's something else interesting happening. And so, you know, personal connections as well as diversity, as well as places that I think were sort of undervalued when it came to food. Sure. I mean, there is a really, you know, and, and I think you you did a great job of kind of taking a wide, uh, you know, a wide view. I mean, Sitka, Alaska, I looked up all the populations uh, earlier, and I mean, Sitka, Alaska is not even 9,000 people right? compared to right. Boise, and Boise is 225,000 people, but is has been growing exponentially in the last 30 years. I mean, they're up 66% since 1990 in population. Yes. Yeah. Boise is going to be the, really the new Portland yeah, Portland, right. Oregon right. of the West. Sure. <laughs> and uh, it's definitely one of the up and coming cool places to go. Yeah, but then in spite of the fact that it sort of lists, exists in this very red state. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one of the things, I mean, you know, definitely, uh, you know, there there's a lot to say, I think, about food and politics. And I have a question about that kind of later, later in the show. Um, but, you know, everybody eats. Right. And, and I think that one thing that is a unifying factor is that everybody wants to be healthy. I don't think anybody approaches their dinner table or, you know, their meals and saying, oh, you know, I really I think I do want my children to eat food that's not good for them. That's right. I mean, and you, you know, going back to your first question about, you know, are things better now or, or, or are they worse? And I that food consciousness, you know, that awareness of the relationship between diet and health has grown exponentially in the last 10 to 20 years. It's like you can, you can talk to anybody now who probably could lose a few pounds, who could exercise more, could do a lot of things to sort of make their lives better. Uh, and they will talk to you about what the right thing is to eat. They yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. That consciousness has grown just like, you know, it's off. It's ballistic in a way. In the same way that, you know, I've, I think the fact that community consciousness has grown. I mean, the fact that cities are doing these things, that City Hall is involved. And, you know, my, I go back to my days in Hartford, Connecticut, where, you know, I couldn't get the mayor or the city council to give me the time of day when it came to food. But now, I mean, all these places and hundreds, I mean, thousands of cities have some kind of stake in the ground when it comes to food. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. What did you find in those cities as far as local government involvement in either championing or supporting or helping create an environment that was sort of positive for the growth of these food businesses? Every single one of them um, had, I mean, their elected officials or their city government or county governments 
were doing, we're aware of food issues. They were doing something. Many of them had a food policy council, which is a more organized form of response, you know, that brings together all the different stakeholders within a community's food system to try to come up with a more rational, intelligent approach to addressing food problems. I mean, the mayors were engaged, uh, the mayor mayors and well, I, I talked to talked to two different mayors in Portland, Maine, because they, you know, their terms uh, overlapped. Yeah. But, um, you know, they were very proud of their reputation as a food city, as something that had a one mayor, the mayor in Portland told me that, you know, some magazine had identifying Portland as having the best ice cream huh. <laughs> in, in America, which so I couldn't figure that out at all. But I mean, but the fact that the mayor was touting that was very interesting and but i mean more perhaps more substantively I, I mean, the fact that um an elected official would be being being very deliberative being very thoughtful about how food fit into the quality of life of their community mm. how it fit into sort of the planning you know what a lot of them are much they're very sophisticated in many respects in the sense that they're thinking about what do we want our food our city to look like or be like in say five years or ten years and um, all of them had food uh, as part of that plan I mean let's we want exciting places for people to eat and drink and we want we want it to be sort of spread out and you know not just all clustered in a central business district or so-called entertainment district we want it to actually be everywhere um we want to make sure there's a way to to make sure that everybody else is taken care of we want to take care of our own that's a theme that i use throughout the book is that you know there any place you go there's a lot of people still who are hungry or have food related problems and city officials were paying attention to those as well as the fact that they wanted to have cool restaurants and hip brew pubs and cafes. Um, some of them, like Alexandria, Louisiana, a very poor area, a very racially divided, uh, mostly rural. Surprising number of city officials and other sort of quasi-governmental bodies that were working very hard to make food a, a big part of their long-term economic development strategy. There was, you know, in, in Alexandria, they had three people, three full-time staff people mm-hmm. dedicated to food and food systems as part of their plan to create more jobs and a more vital and robust economy. So all of that kind of, you know, sort of struck me. And, and then the leadership, too. I mean, individuals who are really standing up. Um, one of my favorite uh, folks that I spoke to was a woman named Olga Negron, who is the head of the Bethlehem, Pennsylvania City Council, first Latina elected to uh, the city council in Bethlehem. And uh, she's providing a very vital leadership role overall. But uh, she's very keen on making food and already has done that to make food a, a big part of Bethlehem's identity and to be respected sort of multicultural diversity at the same time. So all of that from the elected officials. But, you know, the interesting part, too, is that, you know, I go back to my days in Hartford and it was like we often were feeling like we were in combat with City Hall. I was a nonprofit advocate, didn't work for city government, but always sort of battling with them to get them to do stuff. Nobody has to do that anymore. Right. Yeah. 
they're much more accommodating and they get it. And there's a great partnership between the, the public sector and the private sector. Yeah. I mean, you know, to, to, to look at Connecticut, I mean, I, you know, I drive through New Haven uh, quite often. And uh, I imagine you remember from your time in Hartford, if you went down Route 91, where mm-hmm. it joins with 95, there were a bunch of food trucks, uh, you know, starting with some hot dog trucks and then expanding mm-hmm. into, you know, Mexican and South American food trucks along the highway um, on the access road that when I started visiting them were really just parked on dirt. I mean, they were parked on like a dirt you know, a patch of dirt next to the road and truckers would stop and guys yes. who worked in the docks would come and get stuff. And within the last two years, the city of New Haven has put in uh, electric service so they don't have to run generators anymore. And they've installed sidewalks and they've installed seating and they've paved the road where these guys are parked. And, you know, and, and I know that, you know, that they are paying the municipality for permits and, and such to be there. And so there's a revenue generator for the city there. But I find that to be very sort of forward thinking of the, of the city. Yes. And that's that's fairly common. I think that those are the kinds of things that cities used to hide, right. you know, or they would be relegated to the margins, right, to the underpasses or whatever. Yep. And, uh, and nobody ever, I mean, yeah, certain people, they're almost like there was a, there was a, you know, the red light zone or something. And now they're out, you know, they're revealed and they're being, and they're, re- and people are recognizing that this is an important part of our city. This is a, this is part of our character. Yep. I mean, they've, they've spiffed them up, they've cleaned them up and they've actually started, you know, have a few sanitation rules, which is probably a great idea, yeah. but, um, you know, all the, I mean, farmers markets are kind of fit into a, a similar category mm. of something that was sort of a marginal viewed as a marginal activity. Um, and now is very prominent. I mean, having a Saturday morning market in the middle of town is considered like almost mandatory right. um, yeah. in many parts of the country. And that's really fascinating to see that kind of recognition. And Again, there's many, I mean, to have a farm-to-table restaurant or to have um, uh, farm-to-school programs, I mean, have all recognition, the, the larger recognition of food as having a local identity. You know, we can we know where it's coming from. We have some idea who these farmers are and that, in fact, there's a relationship between what we're buying and eating in our city and not too in these farmers who aren't too far away from us. Yeah, I have to wonder if part of it isn't just, you know, truly that people do want to belong to a community. And as we've seen kind of in in the time period that we're talking about, we've seen the decline of what's referred to as Main Street USA and local businesses where you're seeing your neighbors and you're seeing people in the community when you're in your in your downtown that I think some of the food stuff is replacing that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the relationship between the, you know, the decline of Main Street America and the resurgence of local food. Now, I say local food. I'm not just talking about food that's grown locally, right. but also food shops and bakeries and cafes and restaurants that are locally owned or wrote coffee roasters that are locally owned and they employ local people and they, you know, they generate a lot of jobs collectively. Yeah. Maybe one bakery only employs 10 people, but think about all the other businesses that are related to that or, or that are doing similar things. I mean, I saw this in Jacksonville, Florida, an area of town that was just a, even still looks a little sketchy um, and uh, is now like has, you know, I think two new brew pubs. It has a a great coffee shop and bakery, um, a a couple of really sharp uh, restaurants and 
it is definitely leading the way in the resurgence of an area that was generally very low income and where there was almost no quality uh, commercial activity. And the interesting thing, too, is that you're finding that people are mixing black and white are mixing people who have where there have been these racial divides that are sort of geographic and in income and have been reinforced by all kinds of stereotypes and racism over the years some of these zones are actually considered places where we can mix and be we can be together as a community black mm -hmm. and white and not feel um <clears throat> like we're stepping into a danger zone or feel like there's you know something that's uncomfortable here so you know i saw that very much in jacksonville and i saw it in other cities too you know just that fact that i almost see sometimes not always but food is kind of the tip of the spear when it comes to changing a community that has been down and out for a long time. This episode is brought to you by Huertas. Huertas serves Basque-influenced fare, evoking the lively eating and drinking culture of northern Spain and creatively inspired by our home in NYC. Consider Huertas for your next event. Their private room is perfect for work dinners, baby showers, and birthday parties. There's even a small patio attached. Learn more at huertasnyc.com. That's H-U-E-R-T-A-S-N-Y-C.com. talk a little bit about how the immigrant communities are influencing this. I mean, I, you know, as someone who uh, lived for a long time in New York City, um, you know, spent a lot of time at immigrant run restaurants because it was one of the great things to do in a city, right, is to go and you can travel the world just, you know, through your plate, essentially. Um, you know, and, and we live in a time where a lot of the rhetoric, I think, coming uh, certainly from the from the, the, the head of the uh, the head of the country is that we should be afraid of the immigrants who are coming to this country. Um, but in my view, they're some of the people who are really helping strengthen the food and strengthen oh, what we're seeing. Totally, totally. I mean, Bethlehem is a good example. You know, here's a city that was, you know, basically on, you know, on life support in the 1990s after the Bethlehem Steel Works, yeah. uh, you know, closed and went out of business. 30,000 people. Right. I think you say in your book, 30,000 people lost their job. Over the course of several years in the 90s as the gradually shut down. And um, but, you know, then there was nothing to replace that. And but the interesting thing is that Bethlehem had a uh, immigrant community identity because people had come from all over the world over the course of 100 years to work in the Bethlehem Steelworks. Yeah. And so what do these folks do now? Well, a lot of them started to open up restaurants and they did it with the support of some to some degree some of the small uh, small business development <clears throat> organizations that were available that still are available some of which come out of city hall and that you know so mom and pop businesses opened up so and they weren't you know these aren't high end places you know these are um you know, very affordable and uh, you know, Peruvian, El Salvadorian, Puerto Rican, um, Ethiopian. Um, and I think that the, in a small area south, the south side of Bethlehem, which is not a large 
not a huge community, not a large, really large neighborhood, but you know, still a good size. The um, you know that immigrant restaurant trade uh, began to become a very vital part of that community. And the interesting thing was that people recognized that, and they would the uh, sort of um, accompanying uh, institutions were. Uh, came around and supported that. For instance, in Bethlehem, they they brought in a charter uh, uh, school in downtown Bethlehem, which is kind of in the middle of this whole area where all these ethnic restaurants are located and other restaurants. And um, 650 kids come in, high school kids come in every day uh, to go to this charter arts school that uh, opened up just four years ago. And they have 90 performances every evening. Uh, during the school year and that's parents friends so relatives coming to listen to watch their children perform and they're eating out so just that that synergy by thinking thinking strategically about how do i develop a community that has had a on hard times how do i bring in a new business in this case it's a school and then just up the hill from this area is lafayette no excuse me that wrong school lehigh university yep. and they had this sort of resistance between that town gown kind of barrier that existed mm-hmm. well they they gave that up they said let's get rid of that attitude and they began to open up themselves to the rest of the community and so those students and faculty are coming down the hill and enjoying this rather diverse um, emerging cuisine and there's a distillery there's several brew pubs there's um a new food incubator uh, which is has started s- uh, several new food businesses privately owned for-profit food businesses um so you know you see that synergy between institutions between you know immigrants coming in and and providing a really not just coming in but who are there and now have opportunities to develop businesses that are related to food as it was funny to see excuse me to see the same thing in boise idaho ethiopian ethiopian restaurant in boise who would have thunk that right and and um you know and you saw that same diversity, not quite with the same sort of concentration and it wasn't quite as obvious as it was in Bethlehem, but still it was being recognized as something that was great, something that was adding a certain quality of life. Um, there was, people didn't feel threatened by any of that. They felt that it was, you know, something that they were proud of. Yeah. That's a, I mean, and, and, and that diversity, um, you know, and, and that inclusion, uh, I think is really what's important. And I think that that's that, right. That people are, you know, going out to those restaurants and that, and that those immigrant restaurants are successful, right. Represents that people mm-hmm. are living there, are eating there and, and are, are going to those restaurants. And it's not just in the restaurant world. It's also in food production and right. in Portland, Maine, and also again in Boise, there are large immigrant community, recent immigrants from um, often from Africa, uh, from Somalia and and elsewhere, refugees who have been provided with lots of opportunities to grow their own food um, in organized plots, not just community gardens, but sometimes farms that are large enough to be able for them to actually go into some kind of food business, actually start to sell some of their what they're growing. So that that there's been places set aside and organizations that serve those communities in Boise and in Portland. 
So with, with all these, I mean, with all these, you know, really wonderful things that are happening and all these positive changes that have taken place, um, do you think that we should be worried about the Trump administration and the changes that they're making? I mean, you know, the recent news about them revising the SNAP rules to require a certain number of hours. Of yeah, I mean, that's that's so unfortunate. And it's just part of the general meanness of this administration yeah. that, you know, that we let's let's figure out how we can save a few bucks on the backs of what the nation's poorest people i mean you know keep in mind that half of the recipients of the food stamp program are children um you know it's really the biggest child nutrition program in the country um yeah i mean i'm worried i'm very worried about that But, you know, I'm, I think the thing that I really kind of got out of my book um, from doing the research was that there people at the local level are would l- certainly like to have a more supportive federal government, mm. but they're not going to wait. Um, you know, they're going to take care of business themselves. And again, they see food as a way to do that. And they... And going back to the my theme of taking care of our own, they're going to find a way to you know take care of their own, even if the food stamp program is undermined by you know the lesser lights of this administration. Um, so I you know I so I, I come away feeling you know confident in the ability of people to be able to take care of these issues and respond accordingly. But I of course am depressed as. I think most people are with you know the general disregard for humanity that we see among you know with the Trump administration it's not just food stamps it's you know people at our border I live in New Mexico and I every day I see what the consequences are of you know people being denied an opportunity to come to this country and how they're forced to suffer you know for their attempts to do so yeah, and and that they, I mean, and and yet they they keep coming, right? I mean, to me, one of the things that is so amazing about it is that even with all of this like work against them and to kind of to to make it more and more difficult, still, you know, there is opportunity, and I guess that's what we're seeing, right? It's that opportunity on the local level that is what people are after, right? I mean, knowing what the um, what the opposition is, and yet it it tells you how desperate they are. Yeah to find something else that they're willing to try to come here in spite of the fact that, you know, they're up against literally a wall and, you know, some angry resistance from, from a, a small number of people. But, um, and, you know, it's still, it still speaks to, you know, what is valuable about this country if people are coming here. But I, again, it's like, you know, how how is it we do not recognize how desperate people can be and we treat them terribly i mean we 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 do harm to them even when we know they are in the most desperate of circumstances and i i don't see that at a community level i don't see that in cities i don't see that in small towns i see people there taking care of one another and trying to make room for people who are you know, are different than them and that are needy. And um, so it's like, you know, there's two Americas in that sense, but there is a desire to help and to really, but we see it more at a local level than we are seeing it at a national level. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in, in your estimation, what can people do? Um, I mean, obviously, you chose these cities because they are representative of the larger country. You know, what can people do on a, you know, in their communities to kind of move the needle as far as food goes? And I'm really talking about uh, food security um, and kind of helping people out. I mean, is it, you know, what I guess, what, what have you seen in your work that are the most important things people can do? Well, here... Let's say if we're looking at people who are are certainly struggling, um, I think that there's a lot of different areas to to explore. I think in a very immediate, in a very immediate way, we have to respond to people's needs. We have to respond to people's needs for food, and you know, oftentimes the most direct way to do that is through food banks yep. and food pantries and similar organizations. But I I also like the fact that there are places that are you know thinking a little bit above you know the canned food drive and who are sort of thinking well what are what what's causing this to happen and um one of the food banks that i feature in my book is in is in alexandria louisiana where they have they have what's called a one-stop shopping um approach somebody comes in they need food well have you applied for snap benefits i mean you probably are eligible and if you haven't applied we'll help you Mm -hmm. do you have health insurance um many of these people do not we'll help you do that we'll even help you sort of connect with job opportunities and daycare they also have a great program where there are over a hundred uh community garden sites in the region that is are administered by this food bank so that people are learning how to grow their own uh, at the same time feed themselves so that that kind of approach is important but even going beyond that you know that uh, you know seeing if you're yes help people eat today help them with some of their other immediate needs like health insurance and 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 so forth but also what is causing this how can we stop this the, you know the the causes of these problems and oftentimes i i turn to at the local level i turn to food policy councils as a way to try to look at some of the structural inequities that we have in our society and start raising some of the questions around you know are the tremendous wealth and income gap that exists in the u.s you know it's just i mean we've all heard the numbers it's really unconscionable that the richest uh country in the world has such an enormous gap between the rich and the poor and uh, you know that has to be addressed and it probably can only be addressed politically so you know i think having discussions about that you know raising your consciousness about what the causes are but at the same time acting now when the opportunity exists and there are almost always agencies and places to do that and one other thing one other thing you know we all buy food Let's think about what we can do to make sure that our food dollar is being used to um, help our local economy. Right. You know, recycle that dollar by buying local food, shopping in a independently owned, um, uh, locally owned uh, coffee shop, coffee roaster, uh, restaurant. Um, you know, pat patronize the farmers market. Do all those things that because you're buying food anyway. Yep. You know, use that dollar and get as much bang for the buck out of it as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's. I think that you hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, what are you working on next? 
What's what, what, what's what's next for you? I mean, you know, I, I know you spent a, a lot break. of. <laughs> well, I mean, you can you certainly you certainly can take a, you know whatever whatever break you'd like, but it certainly seems from looking at your CV uh, that you've been hard at work for a long time, and you don't strike me as the kind of person who's just going to sit back and you know golf for the you know for the, for the new yeah, future. Yeah, well, well, that wouldn't be pretty at all. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, one of my, I guess you call it my day job, is working with uh, the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, which is based in Baltimore, Maryland, of course. And um, I'm, I've been working with, I actually help them to develop a program which is providing support for all these kind of local initiatives, particularly food policy councils. And um, one one thing we're going to have uh, just about this time next year be the first ever national conference on food policy, local food policy, and local food policy councils. And so I'm going to be very active, I think, over the next year, uh, helping them pull that off. It's um, I was very instrumental in starting food policy councils going back almost 30 years now, and um, I want to see that through. And so I think that'd be a great opportunity. And it might, I'm not, I'm not, sure about this yet but it may be the culmination for me it will be a culmination it'll be an important point for me but i i think that you know looking at how we can continue to build the capacity of local groups to help themselves and to take on policy issues and really develop a future for their communities that is food centric and um you know it touches on health and sustainability and the environment and global warming um you know all those things where we have the ability at the local level to make a difference i i think i'll be weighing in as much as i can on on those things um well that i mean that sounds sounds very exciting where will that be taking place uh the the conference will yeah. be taking place in kansas city Got and it's going to be november don't don't quote me but i want to say november 12th a prize would be like a three-day conference and um there'll be more news coming out about it very shortly over the next few weeks um so we you know save the date notices and all that but very cool yeah personally i'm interested in that i'd like to attend and cover it for oh wonderful we'd love to have you yeah sounds fascinating um, well, thank you so much, Mark. It's been a real pleasure to, to catch up with you and talk about Food Town USA and your other work. Well, thank you, Harry. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find more online about Mark and his books and his speaking schedule at markwinnie.com. It's M-A-R-K-W-I-N-N-E.com. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about Host, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry taking place Monday, January 27, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Porrent, Rita Jamey, 
Crystal Mobiani, JJ Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter and to your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.